Hi, this is Jade Taylor from Sci-Fi's The Magicians. I play Katie Orloff Diaz, and welcome to the Coffee Clash. Welcome, welcome to the Coffee Clash. Welcome to the Coffee Clash Crew, The Magicians episode review. I'm DJ Hansel. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we bring magic back into our lives with episode four, Magicians Anonymous. Written by John McNamara and directed by Gita Patel, IMDb is giving this a 7.5. And Den of Geek says, the Magicians doesn't do anything halfway. But unfortunately, that principle also applies to its missteps, where the series is usually able to weave together disparate storylines to create a cohesive thematic tapestry This episode felt oddly disjointed. It was almost as if the narrative itself was akin to the brown bunny in the etheric realm, jumping from one story to another with dizzying disorientation, admittedly charming us along the way. Each storyline on its own wasn't that bad. The problem may have been the abrupt edits leaving and rejoining storylines with little to justify some of the shifts, making the choppiness of the narrative more obvious. The deficiencies of this episode can't be blamed entirely on technicalities, though. The mysterious signal and curious powers of the Dark King, however divided those plots are now, may eventually relate to the coming apocalypse. But meanwhile, Magicians Anonymous dropped some serious acid and despite some explosive moments, left us waiting for things to go back to normal. Well, things aren't going back to normal anytime soon. Our magicians are in for it. Yeah, but I kind of think that we're probably done with the etheric realm for now. Well, someone isn't. Dean Fogg. Well, yeah, but he seems pretty content there. I'm not sure that Katie is going to make it back, as she says at one point. Well, that might be a fun rescue. Go back into that realm. Yeah, the problem is I just don't think he wants to leave. He's pretty happy with the situation, not having to deal with all the pain and suffering. I like the parallels, and it's a little thin, so I might be wrong here, but I'm getting a little bit of parallels with Alice in Wonderland. Mm-hmm. You know Alice in Wonderland, the whole thing is that it's about dropping acid and being really high. I mean, even the Mad Hatter, you know why he's mad? Yes, I do. It's the material that they used in the wool felt that they were creating the hats for at the time that they didn't realize was... Had mercury. Poisoning people. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that fucked up? Yeah. And the bunny. Alice is chasing after the bunny. Mm-hmm. There you go. But this time he's got sunglasses. And he's, he's brown. Regular glasses. And he's chilling and he's like, come on. So I liked it. I liked that whole storyline. I really enjoyed the high color saturation. But there is one thing I do agree with Den of Geek. First of all, Den of Geek is my go-to blog. Mm -hmm. It's not a commercial. They don't know us. They don't care about us. But I really like their writing for all the shows that they do. And actually, they have a podcast, High High Fidelity, that probably does way better than this. Oh, I didn't know that. I've never listened. But yeah, I really enjoy their writing. And I usually think they're pretty spot on with their analysis of the episodes. One thing I did agree with them is some of the cuts felt disjointed, where all of a sudden we were back to the etheric realm. And it looks like we're coming in on the conversation midway through. It wasn't as smooth as normal, almost as if, oh, maybe they thought there was going to be a commercial between these. Because it's a little more forgiving when it's after a commercial. Yeah, you could say that once, but it happened several times throughout the course of the episode, not just with Katie and Dean Fogg's storyline. And there was a lot of very, very quick scenes where you're just spending a couple of seconds there, and then you're going to another location, and then you're going back there, which can sometimes be good when you're building tension, but I didn't feel the storylines we were looking at in those instances were necessarily building up to that tension you're looking for. But overall, a lot did happen in this episode, and a lot of things I'm a little upset about as far as why are you messing with my penny again, and I'm having conflicting feelings about the library, like, why do I all of a sudden feel bad for them? I'm supposed to hate them. <laughs> but we'll dig into everything that happened and all of our feelings during the episode. But before we go any deeper, I wanted to thank all the Clatchers for downloading the CKC Breakbills University wallpaper. It's kind of like spreading the love and, and having our crew from around the world rocking the alumni. So thank you, guys. And thank you for sending in photos of your phones and your computers. That's so cool. And also, I wanted to apologize about last week. I was really sick and had less and less energy as the episode went along. But Christina did an amazing job and carried us through the whole way. Well, again, before we go into the synopsis, we're going to cover new faces, places, and magic. So for faces, we had Merit, who is one of Penny's students. We have seen her before, but we didn't get a name or a true identity. We discover in this episode... Her full name is Plum Merritt Chatwin. So she's a Chatwin. Who do you think she's a daughter of? Well, I want to save speculation on that. We're actually going to cover Merritt in our closer look later on. Well, excuse me. And there's some 
real big book spoilers. There weren't a lot of those that we had left, but this is from the third book, The Magician's Land, where Plum is actually a character in that book. I'm still on book one. I haven't had time to read with all of our podcasts. Oh, and that reminds me, I am working on another wallpaper. I don't think I'm going to get it done in time because I just don't have time to work on it. Some of our Clatchers have seen me throughout the production of it. I'm creating a Penny character drawing, and he's going to be tutting. And the CKC Magicians channel logo is going to be in between what he's tutting. In my head, it looks amazing, but I don't know if I'll get it done. Sorry, go ahead. That's all right. Next up, we have Clarion, who is the goddess of melody. Oh, goddesses and gods. They're all so mean and selfish. And yet again, we have another one. And not helpful. Not at all. Clay had actually written in to say that one of the parts he missed from these seasons was the view into the old gods and how we could parallel that to the ancient gods. Mm, That's always fun for us. Yeah. And he was saying particularly he loved it when our Penny, meaning Penny 40, sat down and talked with Hades. That was one of the best scenes. So we do have the return of some gods and goddesses. That's clearly a storyline we're going to continue with. Not a a really great one here, but we'll talk about that more when we get to Julia's scenes. Next, we had the group of Visigoths, the Germanic barbarians who show up at the worst times in history, according to Zelda, as well as their leader, Overlord Terence, played by David Anders. I'm going to be honest with you. I was a little confused that we were introducing more bad guys. I'm not too sure if we needed it, but I'm curious to see if the reason unfolds. Yeah, I didn't get the feeling these are going to be characters that are going to continue along into future episodes, although they might. I'm trying to see, like, what was their part in this? Because, okay, we didn't need the books because Zelda, she knows to take the moon. But is it to get us a little bit back on the library side, maybe? Well, you needed a reason, I suppose, to push Zelda out of there. Her character was really unwilling to leave for a lot of different psychological reasons we can talk about. And so you needed somebody bad to push her to the point of burning books. It's, I mean, a huge deal for Zelda. Mm -hmm. And then without that, she realizes what's keeping her here. She can go back and kind of hopefully join up with our group. That's what it looked like. Yeah, that's what I'm hoping. And I want to be on her side. I want to like her. I always wanted to like her. There was such a good side to her that I could see. So maybe that'll shine. I'm getting a little bit of a The Book of Eli which is a movie we reviewed uh, over on Patreon. I won't spoil that movie, but essentially she has the whole library in her head. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of it anyway. She does tell us later that she read a good percentage of those books on Harmonic Convergence, but it turns out really the ones we're losing in a big way are the books of everyone because it seems that they all went up in flames. And finally, we had Emperor Hank, the ruler of the etheric realm where Katie and Dean Fogg go. He was chill. I was getting a a very big Lebowski (laughs) vibe from him. Well, and that takes us to new places. We saw the realm itself, a parallel reality that can only be reached by taking acid. What's intriguing about that is it doesn't take you away from the real reality. Just like you said, it's parallel. Mm -hmm. So if a car is coming in real life, you could still get hit by that car, which we almost saw Dean Fogg do. I got to tell you, many people, especially with something like acid or... You know, the harder drugs, you're chasing the dragon afterwards. Emperor Hank is saying you don't have to chase the dragon. You can just stay here. Mm -hmm. As long as you're here, the high never goes away, he says. Now, if you have something that you need to get back to, understandably, you wouldn't want to stay there. But Dean Fogg has lived through many lifetimes. What is it, 30? 40. 40 40-something lifetimes. Or life cycles, not lifetimes. He's gone through ups and downs. He's on a real big down right now. I kind of don't blame him. That's such a temporary escape, though. I mean, he might have felt differently a couple of days from now back in the real world. But this is a seemingly permanent decision. I mean, the emperor tells him one of them has to stay, meaning you, you can't go back. Of course, like we said, we'll see if that actually applies. But let's get into talking about that because our synopsis is broken down again by groups of characters. And our first being Katie and Dean Fogg. We start out at an MA, that's Magicians Anonymous, meeting where Katie shares her troubles, including those related to the hedge witches. She tells the group she's been trying to discover an answer to removing Reed's mark by finding the book in the library deposit, but it's missing. And the only way to move something that warded is through the etheric realm. Here's the catch. There's only one way into the realm. And as we said, that is taking acid. As soon as the meeting is over, we find out the woman who was encouraging Katie... That she should do this, she should enter the realm, is actually Dean Fogg in disguise. 
I like seeing Dean Fogg playful, almost to uh, kind of an asshole at times. It's mm-hmm. fun to watch. Did you notice his shoes this time? Because I know you've been watching them. Yes, I did. They're always amazing. Bright blue. But he's had those on before, and they are one of my favorites. The two of them take the drug and are transported to the etheric realm, where they see a psychedelic parade taking place in the streets. Mm -hmm. They track the bunny, who they realize is leaving clues for them, to a cotton candy vendor that says the only one who knows where things are in the realm is the emperor. I love the fact that, well, again... I love the high color contrast. I love how trippy everything is. And the cotton candy keeps changing flavor on them. And it's all weird flavors. Kind of reminds me of uh, the Everlasting Gobstopper. Mm-hmm. And also Harry Potter with the beans. Every flavor. Birdie Bot's <laughs> every flavor beans. They continue on to a beach laden with unmatched socks. And despite the high, Katie is still trying to prompt Fog to remain focused on their task. Of course, he's concerned only with locating his long-lost Argyle sock. So this is where they go. I love this. It's really clever writing when they can input something that everyone is going to have an ethereal effect to it. Everyone loses socks all the time. Everyone says, where the hell are they going? (laughs) I put them both in the hamper. I take them off my feet. They go in the hamper. They go in the wash. They disappear. I love that. They go in the sock beach. I'm just hoping they go to the beach after they come out of the wash. (laughs) That's a smelly (laughs) beach. (laughs) And here they meet Hank, the emperor who they ask where they can find the depository. He has an answer, but he says even here there's a price. He will dig into their thoughts to see which of them has to leave and who has to stay. Well, he says gets to. Mm -hmm. How come everything has a price with these gods? Why don't you be godlike? Help us out, man. I don't think they really care that much. And also, go ahead. (laughs) Well... He determines that they're both equal, so they'll have to decide amongst themselves. And Katie and Fogg argue briefly over who wants it more, who wants to stay. But during the conversation, Katie brings up needing the information first. That's more important. And the Emperor realizes she's still holding on to some responsible intent, meaning Fogg is the one he's going to choose to stay. Again, Dean Fogg through these scenes was hilarious. He was acting like the bunny. (laughs) (laughs) I like him in chill mode. She thinks he doesn't really want this, but he says his whole life has been filled with suffering and pain, and now he feels at home. She promises she will come back, and is then transported back to their world with a note that says Hell's Kitchen. That's a long ride for a small clue. Okay, Hell's Kitchen. I have no idea what that's going to mean. Well, she has to go there. Yeah, but but I guess how helpful is it really going to be is the question, because sometimes these clues... I would have been like... You got to tell us where it is and who took it. Mm-hmm. How to get it like, back? Give me, some, give me something, man. There's a lot more to that. Question. We're giving you a life, basically. Mm-hmm. But that's where we leave it for their storyline this episode. And we go on to Julia and Penny brainstorming their next move. The two and Alice think that they need someone who can give them the bigger picture. This is when Julia suggests summoning a god. When are you going to learn your lesson, lady? It's been many <laughs> times. We know that the gods are unreliable, unhelpful. Every time we have summoned one in the past has been a disaster. Frankly, I'm shocked that this is still what she thinks of as the best plan. And I know she says later it's none of them are good options. She feels she needs to do that. But I think that would be more understandable if you knew, despite the consequences, you would also get the information you need or get the help that you need, which we don't ever with the gods. And also a little peculiar that everybody decides the right idea would be to leave Julia. Hmm. I mean, despite thinking it's a bad plan, Penny admits he has to go, that Merritt's signal keeps getting stronger and he needs to try to resolve it right now. And Alice says she needs to go find books on the convergence and she leaves for the library. So first we follow Penny, who goes to see Merritt. He learns that both of them are starting to hear a voice within the signal, but they can't make out anything it's saying. Penny magically modifies a new patch, the ones he's been wearing, and it's supposed to be stronger to absorb the signal. But as soon as he replaces it, he's unwillingly transported again and can't remember where. There is a struggle later where they take him to Lipson to try to get healed. And during this, he manages to say, get Julia. Yeah, he comes back this time beaten and battered. It looks like he has dust all over him. His head is bloody. I think he was a little bit last time too, but it was a lot worse and more noticeable now. And it seems that he doesn't remember when it goes over there. Yeah, he doesn't know where he was. Because that would help if he could explain or describe where he was, how he got that. I was actually thinking as terrible as this was, maybe he should have tried being traveled again on purpose a couple of times. <clears throat> Just to 
see if he could get any more information on it. Yeah. Do you think he has a psychic caller ID so he can like call back? Remember <laughs> Star 69? Well, no. So where but was I just? Star 69. <laughs> every time he was taking off the patch, it was immediately happening. So slap one on and take it off again. Yeah, but he can't control it when, it's, when it sends him there. No, and he can't. So we have, and he can't remember. So I'm saying, like, if he can control and zap there purposefully, maybe he can figure out what it was. Obviously, he can't. Yeah, I don't think so. But you know, maybe his psychic abilities—if he was trying to see if he could hone in on the energy a little bit more, where the force was coming from—I think he was continuing to run from, as he normally does, a lot of these things having to do with his psychic and traveling abilities because they can be dangerous. They can have negative side effects. Did you notice the patch has huge needles? Like he's not just putting on oh, a yeah, band-aid. Oh yeah, he's like ripping it out of the back of his neck. Yeah, those needles are going into it's, his it's neck. It's kind of gross. Ouch. While he's doing that, Julia is busy summoning a god. This time, the answering deity is Clarion, the goddess of melody. Now it kind of makes sense if she's trying to figure out the harmonic convergence, you would want this god, right? In theory, I suppose. In reality, she's kind of useless. She starts off by explaining to Julia what she's imagining regarding the convergence isn't enough. It's It's so so much much worse. worse. So when all the spells cast by all of the magicians go haywire, you're going to get earthquakes, fire, drought, starvation, plague. And then comes cannibalism. Um, is there anything you can do? I could stop it. How would that be? Great. But I'm assuming there's something you want in return. (laughs) You have dealt with a god or two. I want to be human. Like you. Excuse me? I worship you, Julia. How did you do it, though? Because that's the part that I couldn't quite see. There's like some kind of cloak around the whole process. Uh, Rumor is it has something to do with a book. And she's pretty sure she could be a rock star. So she is Taylor Swift. (laughs) Yeah. Well, she wants to be Taylor Swift. This leads Julia to reactivating the binder, which could have been a really interesting turn. I had sort of forgotten about him, but I really love this character as well as the actor, of course. He's annoyed but unsurprised that Julia didn't follow through on her agreement to burn him out of existence. She kept him around. He also wonders, um, didn't she learn anything from her previous interactions with deities? Why would she trust Clarion? Julia agrees it's a bad idea, but feels they don't have another choice, and she threatens to simply hand the binder over if he won't help her. First of all, I just want him around all the time. (laughs) He's just funny. Yeah, I love the talking in third person. It doesn't really get old for me. The binder wonders when the hell is Julia (laughs) going to learn her lesson and stop calling on the gods. Yep. Clarion says, stopping the signal is impossible. That's the initial request. It's coming from a place she can't reach, But what she can do is save Penny. However, as Julia only has one thing to trade, she can only have one miracle in return. Her boyfriend or the world. Why? Those are her words. Bullshit! (laughs) Yeah, Julia's got a lot of problems with this as well. But she does make the choice. She chooses Penny and Clarion leaves with the binder. I would say, I need you to save the world, but Penny is also my world. Part of the world. Oh, there is a part of the world. (laughs) And awakening Penny realizes more has happened here. So Julia tells him the only way to save him, according to the goddess, was to take away his psychic abilities. If that weren't bad enough, this also means he can't travel or else he'd be going blind. Okay, listen, writers of the magicians, Penny is my favorite character and you got to stop cutting off his hands, killing him a bunch of times, taking away his magic. Can we just let Penny be Penny? (laughs) Well, I think this could be a real serious problem because as Clay was saying, for a lot of people, Penny Forty was a favorite. He's been taken away. He was part of the storyline still up until last season. We haven't seen him yet this season. We have Penny 23, who we do like. We are still kind of getting to know him. We've said a bunch of times in the past he's a little different from Penny 40, but we're now going to also take away a big thing that makes his character interesting and very helpful to our group. But I have some technical questions about this. I know that we learned some time back, people who have these abilities are actually part creature. They're part magical creature, and that's where the psychic traveling abilities come from. That's why when there was no magic, he still had the ability to travel and all that. Right. So have they actually taken that part of him away I didn't know they could do that, but they could make Julia not a goddess. So I'm assuming that they could do the same thing for 
Penny and what he is, that did seem to be something different to me. Magical creatures that existed in Fillory, that yeah. type of status or identity wasn't the same as just a magician. Well, I'm hoping that the goddess just turned it off and didn't take it away permanently. I mean, that's a big part of his identity. And now everyone's got an Uber. <laughs> well, and of course, he realizes there's an ironic karma to this. Look, the signal was killing you. I did what needed to be done now. But she didn't have time to be delicate. She just... She said that the only way was... Take away my psychic abilities. Yeah, because... I'm not getting Merit's signal anymore. Or... Anybody's thoughts here? Or... Anywhere. So this is quiet. It is fucking weird. You can't travel anymore. Technically I can. It'd just be like flying a jet blind. And since I'm not suicidal, I... I'm sorry, Penny. No. We just settled a really big spiritual argument here. There's for sure instant karma. Because of his decision for Julia, choosing to make her human and not goddess again. And he also finds it strange to have quiet for the first time in his life. I can imagine that. That's got to be kind of relieving, but also scary. Scary. He looked terrified. If you remember season one, he was so annoyed with the fact that he could hear everybody's thoughts, especially Quentin's. Mm-hmm. Remember that? Mm-hmm. He'd be like, can you just shut up? He's like, I'm not talking. That's all I was thinking of is it actually felt like another loss in a connection to Quentin. This is oh yeah, one thing out of many that made Penny and Quentin's relationship so different, funny, special. But that was the other Penny anyways. Yes, but Penny 23 has also had relationships with all of these characters. Just in a different... In different ways, in a different timeline. So that part could be a little relieving because he's finally rid of that noise. But it's something you've had your whole life. You know, it's like, well, it's like uh, having your hands your whole life and then you don't. It, it's got to be scary. And also he's probably going to be battling with inferiority complex for a little bit, right? Yeah, well, or at the very least an identity crisis. You know, when you go a couple hours or even when we had the storm and we went a couple of weeks without electricity, but you still go walk into a room and you go to click on the light. And you're like, mm. Oh, yeah, I don't have light right now. It's I'm sure nature. There, yeah, I'm sure there's going to be a bunch of times where he's like, I'll be right back. Oh, yeah, I can't leave mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Well, and incredibly frustratingly so, it's at this point, now that it's all said and done, that Merritt admits there's more to this story. She thinks this is all her fault for not revealing the truth sooner about her identity due to the fact that she is a chat when she's never really safe. She doesn't know what the signal is, but she's going to figure out how to fix it. So she pulls off her own patch and is traveled away. And there's no way to go after her. So we have another Chatwin in our midst. And next we move on to Alice and Zelda. Alice enters the library, which she finds in disarray, dark with scattered and missing books. And she finds another group in there. It seems they're trying to steal books. As they start coming after her, Zelda grabs her and pulls her into a back office to safety, putting up wards. She tells her the group outside are Visigoths, these barbarians who in the past have raided cultural strongholds on Earth before moving on to the multiverse. Alice tells Zelda she needs books on the harmonic convergence, and they have them, but they're outside, where the Visigoths are. They start to break through the wards, and the overlord Terence introduces himself. He explains to Alice they aren't really barbaric, they're actually polite, intelligent, they always keep their word. And they seek to acquire only the deepest knowledge in areas such as high arts and philosophy. But Zelda knows what they're really after, the books of everyone, so they can plan to pillage every great work before it's even made. Why do they want to pillage everything and and just kill? Well, they want higher knowledge is what they're saying, but for what purpose we don't really get an answer to. So do you think they're the ones that stole the building? I mean, I did consider that for a minute. I think that learning it's them, seeing as how we just met them, might not feel rewarding. They also just kind of feel like a one-off character group to push Zelda's storyline forward. Well, here she and Alice retreat into a back room, but Alice tells her it's only a matter of time before they break through. She encourages Zelda to leave with her, but Zelda can't. If I could do it all again, 
I'd be a better mother. A truer friend. But I wasn't. I'm not. Because I've given my life to this. It's all I am. It's all I have. I can't lose everything. You can't. Believe me, I have. I'm sorry about Quentin. But this is different. No, it's not. Because whoever, whatever you love that gets ripped away from you, it stays alive inside of us. And anyone you share it with, I can't. I can't. I'm not strong enough. Yet as the Visigoths break through, she lights all the books on fire and puts a wall of flame between them, giving Alice enough time to transport them both out. First of all, Badass power move. Really dug the fire. It's like you're not taking our books. I really dug that in Zelda. But also, right before that, with what she said was very telling of the struggle Zelda went through. We know that she loved her daughter, and she lost her daughter, essentially, due to the library and her love for the library. She lost her friends. Really, the library is her life, and I thought it was very well said and very touching. But again, I'm so conflicted because I felt myself feeling badly for the library and I had to tell myself but no remember what the library was doing <laughs> even in the beginning they were assholes when we when they weren't bad guys they were just assholes although we do see that there are some good people there like Zelda who really thought that they were doing things for the right reason and she's clearly had a major breakdown of conscience what that all means and what does she do now but that's what I mean about a good bad guy she was a quote-unquote bad guy last season for a while. Mm-hmm. But her intentions to her were good. It was for the right reason to her. Well, and for this reason, for the library, which she's just willingly burned up a good percentage of the books and left the rest. And back at the house with Penny and Julia, Zelda and Alice join them. They think that the Visigoths got about half the total collection, including all of the books on Convergence. But as we said, not all is lost, as Zelda has read most of them. She says the answer isn't complicated to this problem, but it is near impossible. They just need to move the moon. <laughs> not too big of an ask. The top of the season, we said, well, we think this season has to do with the moon because of their main poster. It has the moon in it. Mm-hmm. Their poster is always very telling of what's important. Before we had the keys. I kept getting confused while making notes for this episode because... I was combining Sabrina on Netflix (laughs) and this show because the same day before this show aired, I watched an episode of Sabrina and I don't want to spoil it. It has something to do with the moon. (laughs) That's funny. I wish Zelda and extensively the library had the ability to move things just like the building was moved, but move things quickly. You would think that would be a defense mechanism for a library who protects their books Mm -hmm. where she could have a spell readily available, and that whole room of those books goes to another realm. Would be transported realm. Yeah, Even just the normal course of their excellent magicians, there's no way she could have done that. I mean, she's been at the library for quite some time now. She's known this problem is developing, mm-hmm. and she had Alice with her, yeah. who's one of the most powerful magicians. Or at least have the books be able to be locked down. And I don't mean physically. I mean, uh, with a spell from a librarian, a high-ranked librarian, the books could be, quote-unquote, wiped of the text until they unwipe it. Or as we saw with a section of the books, you couldn't see them because there was a phosphoromancy spell on them, which is Alice's specialty, again. Mm -hmm. But that's a lot of books in a short amount of time. Minus one, right? Quentin's isn't there. Alice took it to do the golem spell, and I know she got rid of the bit of his soul, but we didn't see what happened to the book. Hmm. Curious. Is he the only book of everyone that just survived? I wonder. So coming back to the moon, it seems obvious the reason they need to move it right is because what they're gearing up for is this convergence, which when we read about it and we did our closer look, is when a bunch of the planets and the sun align for a period of time. So if they move the moon, do they throw that off? Not everything is in alignment? I'm assuming. Thus prevents the convergence? Presumably, yeah. However, that's going to 
require seemingly a great deal of magic. And anytime they're doing magic, they run the risk of it going afoul because of the surges. <laughs> so how do they fix this problem without causing an even larger one? Quite a conundrum. Well, for our last group, we're going to move over to Fillory. In Whitespire, the Dark King tells Elliot he's impressed with his skills. Who trained you? Bunch just picked up a little bit here and there. Clearly not enough since I couldn't put a scratch on that taker. Don't be modest. You have what it takes to be quite formidable. I could use you. Official court magician in defense of the kingdom. You could teach others and be taught by me. I would be honored. Now, of course, I was wondering at this point if Elliot was just playing along with this, as I thought he must be. Later, we're going to see that Margo is, in fact, doing that, but it doesn't appear so. It seems like he actually has been taken in by him because Margo kind of chastises him for that. It seems it to me. Elliot's at his most vulnerable right now, emotionally, and the Dark King is taking advantage of that. The show is trying to get us to believe he's a good king or he's a good guy. But I still, at this point, stand firm that this can't be the real him or is all a ruse. Well, they also keep following it up with all of these contradictory things, such as he has to put these magical pools everywhere so people can see him make a grand show of taking out the takers. I mean, I don't think he's doing all of that for no reason. He is being very deceptive. He's going to say in the next moment he apologizes for deceiving Elliot. But he's doing it in a very charming, sort of manipulative way. I mean, first off, he tells him, you can call me Seb when we're alone. Now, <laughs> again, I was a little confused. I don't recall him ever giving any name throughout the course of the last episode. That's what immediately made us suspicious. This has to be the Dark King because there's no name for him. I forgot to mention in our last episode spoiler section, there was a video up on sci-fi and I didn't know if it was a mistake where Hale Appleman was talking about that episode and referring to the Dark King as Sebastian. And it was really quick in passing that he said it. And I thought to myself, I wonder if we were actually supposed to know that. But anyway, we get that here. And he also says... He has to be careful who he can trust, and sometimes it's a relief to remove the weight of the crown for a while, to not be the king. After that is when Margot privately tells Elliot she's shocked that he's buying into this and urges him to hold his decision on if the king is good or evil. They need to gather more information and then regroup. And that's why she goes to this meeting Well, she has been named to this centurion guard. But she's trying to see what people are talking about, what the word is. At the meeting, the lead centurion explained the most important job is protecting the king. He's powerful, but not invulnerable. Well, that has to be foreshadowing. What are his vulnerabilities or weaknesses? Here, Margot's shown these pools that are placed in every room of the castle and most taverns, and she thinks it's like Fox News. So the other centurion says, Foxes all lie. Who would ever believe their news? I thought that was funny. <laughs> I like that. The king then leads the group into the forest to find the map makers. Here they're surrounded by takers, and Margot manages to hit two with her axes, but they rise back up. The king has to come in and kill them with magic. However, he seems drained by the effort, actually falling onto Margot. Yeah, I'm not sure I understand that. I'm not sure if it's fake. I don't think so, because it's showing weakness, and why would he intentionally do that? Plus, he legitimately seems wiped when he goes to talk to Elliot later. He passes out mid-conversation. I think whatever this is taking from him to do that is starting to take a toll. Yeah, I, I might be very ignorant and very off here. I'm still sticking to the fact that I think the takers are his creations. Oh, I believe that. I agreed with you on that point. But that's not to say he doesn't still need to perform some kind of magic. He used to magic to them. create them, to, to get rid of them, and it, it might be draining him in some way. Because later Elliot says that there are centurions missing. I don't think they were missing... Unless like they I didn't, didn't come back. I didn't catch that. He said the couple didn't come back, and that's the group that Margo's with who stayed to investigate the cottage. Oh, yeah, you're right. My bad. Yeah. That's why he asked. Okay. Because he was like, well, where's my buddy? But he didn't want right. to be too obvious about it. Yeah. Uh, we do see that he returns exhausted to Whitespire. And he says something curious to Elliot before passing out, that sure, maybe he used to be great, but now it's just holding actions. That's all he's doing. Now, a holding action is an attack designed to prevent an enemy from attacking or moving its position. So you're basically in a, a stalemate. Okay, now you're starting to make me think, maybe I'm just a hater. No, <laughs> I, I definitely agreed with you about that, and I still don't know that we've gotten a firm answer on it. I'm wondering. You know, it'd be a nice twist if he's actually not a bad guy, 
And there was a reason that this happened mm-hmm. that I'd, I'd actually enjoy. And that's why he thinks nobody else can rule because if he's the only one able to manage them, he's got to remain in control. He did tell Elliot last episode, there are ways that you can do this and I'll teach you guys whatever I know. Why hasn't he taught anybody else how to fight the takers? Does it take a really skilled level? And that's why he was interested in Elliot. He does say you have, he's impressed by his skills. Mm-hmm. I wonder. So I but, think if he does teach him and it's effective, that's going to be our first clue of. But then why does he have Dark King TV on 24 hours a day? Well, that's what day, I said. You know? I don't know. Look how impressive I am. I'm, I'm so. But again, if you needed to keep the people on your side so that they would continue having you as their leader and not revolt, is that just a strategy because he thinks this is what's best for the kingdom and he has to keep everyone? Of course, so that there being a reason. Okay, I dig it. I can kind of see that side of it too. I'm still not sold to he's 100% good, but... I mean, he was a prick to the uh, people that he works for. He's like, I'm very impressed. Not by you. Mm-hmm. You know, so maybe that's his real personality. I don't know. Other people have been talking. Some of our Clatchers wrote in to say they were excited about the idea, much like we were saying that the Dark King is somehow related to Quentin. Yeah. And I mean, if so, we don't really want him to be bad, bad, right? And that's something that they could put in there to make us be a little more on his side. Well, in the last scene, we go over to those missing Centurions who are actually still on the rest of this mission, Margo's with them. They're looking for something in the cabin. She's not sure what until she's able to see with her fairy eye there's someone hiding under the floorboards. She doesn't acknowledge that she sees her and that she knows she's a fairy. She goes along with the group as they discover her and arrest her. This completely threw me off. I thought all the fairies had gone back to the fairy realm, you know, and and they're good guys and everything's copacetic. Well, and nobody can harm them, right? That's why the fairy queen gave up her life to make this deal. And she made it with humans. Maybe people such as the Dark King with very powerful magic still can. Or maybe everything's not going so well with their people. I mean, we haven't seen them for a while, so we don't really know. Yeah, that was two seasons ago, if I remember correctly. Oh, I'm getting confused now. Um, between the king and now the fairy, I'm so intrigued with this storyline. And I'm curious to see where it, where it takes us. But at this point, I'm starting to think this may bring out the dark in the Dark King. When we see how he's treating her. Yeah. Yeah. And he's been living for 300 years. Has he only been living that long? He's weak right now. He needs fairy dust. He needs something with the fairies to live longer, to stay powerful. That's why they were looking for it. Well, it could definitely be because we saw people like Irene McAllister, and again, this could be how we're bringing her back at some point, was taking them to That's his son, kill her them son. And, and get fairy dust for increased magic. So if he has increased magical ability, he could very well be doing the same thing. And to live forever, to be immortal. Last episode, you said it could be a McAllister kid, right? No. I was thinking it could be the McAllisters that had moved the library deposit. Oh, okay. I didn't think it was going to tie in here, but, you know, That's the... Our right. Clatcher did, I think. ...appearance of a fairy might change that. Wow. Okay, maybe we figured it out. Or maybe we're way off. All I know is I'm excited to find out. And next week, we have two episodes in one night, 9 and 10 o'clock. So we're not sure how we're going to break down the podcast, but we will figure it out for sure. It might wind up being two episodes that we release separately. It just depends on the flow of the storyline and how they go about this. Maybe it'll just be one slightly longer one. Or maybe we combine it because we do have, perhaps, I'm not announcing it yet because it might fall through, an extra Magician's Cast coming out to you soon. And we also have our Patreon coffee break that we will be recording next weekend. So schedule is tight, but we will figure it out. And speaking of Patreon, thank you to the new Clatchers who have joined. Welcome to the family. And you Clatchers out there who are thinking about joining, we just released our bonus episode where we took one of our Clatchers ideas, Melly, and we did an episode on luck and fortune. And it was really fun. And like I said, we'll be coming out with our coffee break, which will have our Clatchers coming in with their thoughts on luck and fortune, if they've ever experienced it, and also a little bit about their horoscopes. And then we will have our poll for the movie this month that our Clatchers will be letting us know what we will be reviewing. So just head on over to coffeeclatchcrew.com, click on Patreon, and join us for even more CKC goodness. So to recap, this episode leaves us with a bunch of questions, including, is this the end of Dean Fogg's storyline with the magicians? Will he stay in the etheric realm, or will Katie return there? 
Will she find the library depository at Hell's Kitchen? Is this really the end of Penny's psychic and traveling abilities? And if so, what does that mean for his magic in general? Now, we have seen him regain powers in the past, and it turns out that even the decision made for Julia wasn't the end of the magic for her. So there could be a reversal to that. We'll have to wait and see. Why is Plum in danger, and what has she gone to figure out? Will Zelda continue working with our group now? How do they plan on moving the moon? especially since any magic they need could have bigger consequences with the surges. And is the Dark King good or bad? And also, what does he want with the fairies? And that takes us to our rating for the episode. On a scale of 1 to 10 surges, Jason, what do you give Magicians Anonymous? I think this was a pretty strong episode for the Magicians this season. But I did like last episode a little better, so I'm going to go with 7.9 surges. I'm just upset with them for messing with Penny. Well, while there were some elements of this that I certainly enjoyed, I continue to really love Alice's storyline, all the different directions they're taking us with that. I was so happy to see Zelda back on screen and paired up with our group. The time really was equally split between all of our pairings, and I wasn't as excited about the other plot lines, and I felt some difficulty with the narrative and the editing. It was an okay in-between episode. I didn't like it as much as our previous episodes, so I'm going to go to a 6.5 surges. And now we move on to our Clatchers, where via Twitter, at CKC Podcast, we ask our Clatchers, who's your MVM for this episode, and what are your thoughts? This week we gave Katie and Dean Fogg, Julia and Penny, Margot and Elliot, Alice and Zelda. Coming in at fourth place with 7.1% is Julia and Penny. Well, I mean, she didn't really resolve anything. She got herself into more trouble. Penny got himself into more trouble. We're more saddened at those scenes right now. Coming in second place with 16.7% are Katie and Dean Fogg. I mean, sort of likewise, this is a sad moment that Dean Fogg might wind up staying here in the etheric realm, and we don't really know how far we've advanced with the information we got. It could be a scenario like like Julia received. You know, how much is that clue actually going to help us? So we're going to have to wait and see for next episode. And in second place with 21.4% is Margot and Elliot. Well, Margot being kick-ass again. We have the revelation of the fact that fairies are back into play. The confusion of do we like or do we not like the Dark King? And the fact that we're realizing Elliot may be smitten. Well, so far we've had two wins for Margot. In episode one, she was paired up with Elliot. And in episode two, as a solo win with 60%. And now we can say we've had two for Alice. Last time she won on the pairing with Elliot. And this time it's her and Zelda with 54.8%. As we said, this is really good emotional work. It's really great to see Zelda back on screen and, in fact, helping our characters to give the information they need by the end. Now, these numbers may change a little bit because there's still two hours left on the poll, but the winner is winning by such a landslide that I think they will remain. So let's see what our Clatchers had to say. Brian C. says, Margot and Elliot might not be the MVM, but there's just a storyline I'm most interested in following. I'm starting to suspect the Dark King isn't the Dark King at all, but just a puppet ruler of Poppy. Oh, hmm. Well, I don't know. We also got an email from Josh saying he wanted to throw another theory into the hat on who the Dark King's parents might be. He thinks Poppy could be the mother or the ancestor. She was pregnant, remember? That's what he said, and Q even suspected it was his child. She said it wasn't. However, she could have been lying. We might not know the whole truth. This could be a perfect setup to bring Poppy back this season as well. I like it, guys. I like it. We got to remember that one. Sherry Ava says, I was also struck by the balance and cosmic karma in Julia and Penny's story. The loss of psychic abilities will have long-term effects on Penny. Also, how cool is it to have Plum Chatwin in the mix? This week is a hard choice because everyone's story is still unfolding. I'm voting Margot and Elliot because they've infiltrated the castle and discovered fairies in hiding. Maybe the Dark King is ramping up his power with fairy essence? Okay, I swear we didn't read this comment Mm -hmm. before. Like the McAllister family, she asks. We're on the same wavelength. I like it. Maybe we are onto something. Us and the Clatchers. Well, I don't think it's a mistake that we've just discovered one fairy in hiding, looking very scared. Margot has this ability to see them. That's definitely going to be a theme that comes back in, whether or not it includes Irene. We'll have to wait and see. Be Nice says the episode was entirely about choices. Zelda, Dean Fogg, Margot, and Julia were all faced with impossible choices that will form the rest of the season. Zelda's choice had the more immediate impact. She surrendered something she has treasured her entire life. 
Even Plum made a choice. Let's hope we see more character development for her as her story needs to be detailed more. What exactly is her lineage? Nice to see the return of Matt Frewer, as well as the return of season's past moments with Summer Bischel. And how many shoes does Dean Fogg have? (laughs) (laughs) Styling. Styling, for sure. Jordans. Trees in Snow said, slim pickings this week. Lots of plot movement, but too little attention was paid to motivation. I don't understand the threat posed by the Visigoths, but I guess I believe Zelda's assessment. Well, they were kind of just thrown in there. It was like a new bad guy. I totally understand that. Rishandal says, I was wondering what happened to the fairies. Is the Dark King a McAllister? There you go. Well, so far we've got, could be related to Poppy, Irene McAllister, or Quentin. Or all of them. I'm going to most want to see Quentin. Um, <laughs> you know, that doesn't mean he still couldn't be working with Irene, even if he's not related to her. And I think I see that being more likely. There's also characters, you know, that I did think would come back around later who perhaps are, are gone. Perhaps we won't see them again. So I'm not really sure. Kelly Cat says, I was thinking this too. Maybe the McAllisters broke the deal and now the fairies are taking back what is theirs. Hence the takers. I can't wait to see how it all plays out. It has been 300 years. That's true. Margarita, truthfully, the MVMs were Alice and Zelda, but I will never not vote Margo and Elliot. (laughs) When given the choice, just how Jason will never not vote Penny. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) But with that being said, I'm actually, I can't vote Penny right now. I'm just upset. He's not on the poll. Oh, he is on the poll with Julia. I'm sorry. I'm just upset (laughs) in that whole storyline. Why did you need to take his powers? So I am going to go Alice... And Zelda as well. I mean, we had Alice who was going to the library to help the team out. And if you remember some of the struggles we had with her the last couple of seasons were that, well, one, she was a Niffin, so she was very selfish. It was all about her. But then also, I think it was last season or the season prior, they're all melding together now. Do you remember that even though she was back and she was no longer a Niffin, she still seemed to be doing things just for herself? She would be leaving the group to figure something out for herself. So it's nice, not that she hasn't done so since, but it's nice to see her helping the crew out. Well, she's primarily been trying to fix the mistakes she's made. It's for herself because she was trying to do right. She was trying to undo stuff she'd already done wrong. And we kind of even had that moving into the Quentin Golem here. But I think we've been able to more emotionally connect with why she does the things she does and how she feels about that. And pairing her with other characters such as Julia and Elliot lets us see that resonance a lot more. But of course, I always most enjoy seeing her with Zelda, and I love the character of Zelda. So that's going to be my MVM for this week as well. It's good to see Zelda. I mean, the speech she had was so beautiful, and hopefully she'll be helping us out and not just disappear next episode. Speaking of disappear, where's Josh? And Fen. And Fen. Yeah, we just got the big... Speaking of emotional impact, reveal that Josh had this relationship with Fen while they were over in the other timeline. We're barely able to see Margot react to that and we're off onto a different plot line here. So I'm sure we'll come back around to that, but it's sort of a thread we've left hanging for now. And we actually had a write-in about that. Anastasia says, I'm writing because I'm unclear about the time, this is our last episode review, that allowed Fen and Josh to have the affair. My understanding was that up until the magical surge at Quentin's death, which made Fillory 300 years in the future, Earth and Fillory were experiencing time the same. Now it seems Fillory and Earth are again on the same timeline, since our characters are going back and forth in the most recent episode. I do still think they're on a different time. Fillory is 300 years ahead, and I don't know how that means they're able to move back and forth. That's a question that we brought up when we saw Margot going through the clock. She also says up until Quentin's death, Josh and Fen were in contact with their friends. Then the time gap happened. It seemed like only a few days before Elliot and Margot returned to Fillory and eventually sent the letter that led to having the time war dwarf send them 300 years in the future. Well, that I think is really hard to guess. How long were Fen and Josh in this alternate timeline? How much time went by? It could have been a lot of time that they were trying to save them. Oh, I think so. Using all these magical items. It looked like it happened in a quick montage on our screen. It could have been weeks. It could have been months. Is that still enough time for them to start having an affair? And the bigger question that she asks, I'm probably overthinking it. It seems to me they would have only had a couple of weeks after receiving Elliot's letter and going to the future. But the bigger thing, how would they know they were stuck 300 years behind? 
So we were saying this is understandable why they would have an affair if they thought it was just the two of them and they were stuck in this alternate timeline, but they wouldn't have known that, right? Yeah, no. What I think is they went a long time being kings. They were ruling and they were trying to find out where their friends were and they couldn't find them. So there's so much time there before their death that I think they could have cultivated a relationship and and had sex. It just depends when the letter came. Then once they read the letter and did what was asked and they came to the future, 300 years, I think that's when they were made aware we're we're 300 years in the future. You guys were going to get killed. Well, that le- yeah, that letter that they sent did tell them, one of Margot's letters, something got messed up, there's a time gap. I guess it's really open to interpretation. How long do you think they spent with it being just the two of them? And I think a while. You can kind of, I guess you could take that either way. As far as the earth fillery stuff, she says, obviously the time differences are complicated. And that's true. We have never really known the way those shifts work. How do you move back and forth? We, we have seen if they're not in alignment there can be problems, but I think that was a much bigger issue for the books that the TV show kind of decided they weren't going to go too far into because it gets very complicated. She finishes by saying it just doesn't seem like the show provided sufficient justification for why they had the affair. And I think that's just the strangeness of not giving it a lot of emotional weight. Uh, when Fen tells Margot, she's like, well, we just slept together, maybe two, three, six, seven <laughs> Well, it was definitely less than a dozen. It's a little bit played for comedy. And then it shifts to, you know, being upset with Margot for saying she was going to leave them there. Time-wise, it, it skims past the fact that there was still an affair. It doesn't quite hold on that. And I think it does leave us with viewers saying, well, it was kind of a big deal, though, right? Like Margot had a right to be upset type of thing. On another note, Nathan wrote in to say when Margot and Fenn participated in the Centurion Challenge fight, It reminded him of a section from The Magician's King of Books. So no spoilers here. He just finds a good comparison. He says, There's a Fillory-wide swordsman competition in the books to decide who will become the personal bodyguard of Quentin and Julia. The final two competitors are named Bingle and Errol. Yeah, Bingle is great. Uh, Bingle wins the competition. He's someone we've already seen on the show. He was the master swordsman who accompanied Elliot as a silent bodyguard on his quest for the first golden key. The runner-up of the competition, Errol, on the other hand, was a very minor book character who pretty much only existed for the tournament, but she was described as someone with long, wavy hair who has stylized, fluid fighting movements, reminding me of Fenn. It makes me wonder if Fenn is an amalgamation of two or more characters, such as Fenn and Errol, just like Katie, book Amanda and Osmodeus. So absolutely, I think that they did that in a lot of areas. You know, Margot is... In some ways, the jumping off point of Janet, but very, very different. And then we have other characters that were more minor in the books. They've made them a lot more prominent in the shows, and they absolutely could be drawing in characteristics from other players. And finally, Sprocket wrote in to give her overall thoughts on episodes three and four. She said she was enjoying episode three a lot, just like we were, that everything seemed back in order or a return to form. For episode four, she said she would like to see a scene that tells us why Zelda is considering moving the moon when the leading authority on circumstances didn't think about that. So Danielle Marcus didn't give that as an option. She says if your whole universe involves certain fixed ideas of circumstances, where the heavenly bodies are plays an enormous role. That's a good point, too. Maybe it's not even about them being in alignment for the convergence, but the fact that the circumstances are so favorable when the surges occur doubles the power. If they weren't as favorable because the moon was in a different position, that could decrease that. Or maybe even decrease it in the meantime while they try to move it. Either way, that's a really good thought. She also says she enjoyed episode four far better the second time around. The trip in the ethereal realm seemed trippier. Dean Fogg is so great in that scene. The fillery stuff was really fun. The Visigoths were interesting. The Penny and Julia plotline fell a little bit flat for her, but she loved seeing Matt Frewer as always. And the last write-in comes from Todd. Hi again, Todd. He says, did either of you notice that the freestanding wardrobe in the loft bedroom is suddenly painted in brightly colored rainbow stripes? We've seen this piece of furniture many times before. It's the same wardrobe the ghost locked Margot up in last season but it's always been an ordinary wood color. Do you think there's a missing scene somewhere explaining why it now looks like a carnival prop? Just wondering. Huh. And I actually didn't notice. I have no idea. There are for sure a lot of scenes where 
we've been cutting in seemingly midway through or missing things that we might get explanations to later. Now, props-wise, I don't know really if that will play in, but that was a good thing to catch. If anybody else noticed the wardrobe, let us know your thoughts. And as always, thank you, Clatchers, for writing in, for voting. And if you want your voice to be heard, you can always call us at ckc.6606. That's 252-368-6606 and we'll play your message on the podcast. And we'd also like to thank our Clatchers who left new reviews. Now, a reminder, we only see the reviews in the States. If you left them in Canada, Australia, and other countries, thank you. We can't thank you by name because we don't see it, but still keep leaving those reviews for us. Melly lets us know that's happening, so thank you also (laughs) to Melly. So in the States, thank you to Cyrus T., Clarity Riding All Day, Juanito SD, Gutty 3, and Elsie Harpist. Thank you guys so much for your kind words. So lastly, we're going to go into our spoiler section because the closer look, as I said, has massive book spoilers. But the closer look will be about Merritt Chatwin. Yes. So, well, more specifically, Plum, as we know her from the books. If you're interested in hearing that and you have read The Magician's Land, certainly stay tuned. For anyone who's afraid of the spoilers, we will see you next time when we review episode five. And six. So, Jason, I have to ask you here in our spoiler section, before you read what I've written, Mm -hmm. would you like to step out as well? Are you nervous about the Magician's Land spoilers? I have to edit, so I'm going to listen to it anyways. Are you sure? Yeah. This is pretty big. Is it? I mean, it involves Quentin, so we're probably not going to see it on the TV show now that we don't have him anymore, but it's sort of the rough outline of what he's doing in book three that, unfortunately, we never got to on the show because... That's all right. He's been taken from us. Well, the big thing is that Quentin, in book three, is a professor at Breakbills. Oh, wow. So I think without him, that's a little bit maybe what they're doing with Penny's storyline. And I don't even know if it's going to come back around in importance or it was just a bit of a nod to that. But Plum was a student there. And now we see that Plum Merritt was a student of Penny's. So I think that they're trying to fold that in where we're missing stuff for him. She was a character named Plum Poison Purchase, and she was revealed to be Rupert Chatwin's great-granddaughter. Now, Rupert Chatwin hasn't been around for quite a while in the TV show and was never really as important. Martin Chatwin was the Beast, and that really kind of just leaves Jane Chatwin in the TV show. So if she's going to be related to someone, I'm thinking it's probably Jane. Okay. But in the books, her her magic included illusion manipulation, while a student at Breakbills, she was the founder of something called The League, and it comprised a group of her friends. But she was responsible for a prank that led to Quentin's dismissal as a professor, something that she felt really bad about. Oh she was allowed to finish the semester before Dean Fogg enforced her own expulsion, and she was kicked out of school. Sometime later, she was recruited for her illusion magic to assist in a heist that Quentin took part of. It was a very weird sideline story for the books where we went on sort of this this heist job, like it turned into an Ocean's Eleven type of thing. It went awry. We won't get into all of the details, but because they were afraid that they might be chased by those people looking for them, they went back to New York. She had a house there that she had bought with her inheritance money from the Fillory and Further books, and her and Quentin hid out for a while in that house. Now, I won't go any further just in case they decide to take some of that storyline because I was really hoping that's where we were going last season, that they were going to incorporate some of that stuff that happens afterwards. And they didn't, but that's not to say they still couldn't. And that would be kind of exciting, so I don't want to ruin that. Now, since they're doing so much remixing, what's the, what is that going to mean for our character Plum here? Clearly, she is still a Chatwin. Will it matter if it changes who she's related to? Probably not. I think it'll be pretty interesting if she's related to Jane. That's really the one chat when we've kept in contact with on the TV show. It could be a good way to get her back into this. Perhaps they are after her for similar reasons to that in the book. They want her illusion magic, her capabilities. We've seen here she's more of a traveler and a psychic, but could she also have some of that? I mean, I guess it could be. That would make her pretty darn powerful. But I also think it's fun to think about how Penny might be teamed up with her as opposed to Quentin and could make Penny's story pretty interesting again. Now, speaking of Penny, we talked once a while back about travelers, how they are a magical hybrid of magicians and an unknown creature, exceptionally rare. They're capable of performing their their magic naturally, independent of the wellspring and any other source of magic. So this is why we wondered, is that something that you can really take away from him? Now, it was always true that this means there's a great emphasis on protecting their own minds. 
There's no known method to help them focus their abilities, and that's why those who do not hone their magic can end up making deadly off-target jumps, and they use rigorous practice to build precision. But also I had thought, is there possibly another way of doing jumps without psychic ability? Is there some kind of way to figure that out? Could that be a journey Penny has to go on? Because that would be kind of cool too. So that just leaves us with what's coming up next. We know episode five is titled Apocalypse Now? Question marks, exclamation point. It says Katie punches a dude and Margot misses cocaine. Margot. So that's weird. And episode six is titled, Oops, I Did It Again. Margot and Elliot have a bad day. As usual, these are very vague. We don't really know what's going on. But in the previews, we did see another part of our opening title sequence that featured prominently on that wall, the giant octopus or kraken, whatever it is. He was in the preview and looked to be coming out of the water maybe in a menacing way. Hard to tell. Maybe that's just editing. I hope he has a high voice and he's very nice. And he's like, hi! Somehow I doubt it. Somehow I feel like if we do move the moon, you're greatly changing ocean tides, currents. Flying whales and shit. And thus you could wind up with some serious yeah. sea life problems. Maybe the Kraken has a deep voice, but every so often it gets high because his voice cracks. And that's why they call him the Kraken. It's through puberty. Ooh, okay. We've been recording too long. So let's wrap it up. Clatchers, thank you so much again for being part of this ride with us. Please let your friends know about us. Please tell your family members. We need the listeners to continue to do this. And don't forget to rate and review. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. And if you really want to help us out, join us over at Patreon. Till next time, this round's on me. This round is on me.